Welcome to 80k After Hours, I'm Kieran Harris, producer of the show and former TV bounty hunter. Today's episode is part of a shameless attempt to drive subscribers from the original 80,000 Hours podcast to here by forcing people to listen to an episode in two parts. In the first part, Rob spoke with two of our advisors, Michelle and Habiba, about their common advice, their favorite stories of people who've changed careers, and how Michelle deals with the emotional challenge of trying to help people who haven't been born rather than people alive to date. In the second part, the very same people discuss advice for younger people, the impact of the one-on-one service, the biggest challenges for the one-on-one team, Agnes Callard's essay, Against Advice, and making people more ambitious about what they can do. It's probably fine to listen to either part first, uh, and you can find that first part on the original 80,000 Hours podcast feed. Uh, It's number 122. Okay, here's Rob, Michelle, and Habiba. All right, let's talk for a bit about what advice you give to people earlier in their lives when they're maybe students at high school or doing undergrad degrees. Do you talk to people at high school? Occasionally. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, is that potentially going to become more common in future? Yeah, I think we'll probably do it a bit more. It is a bit harder to um, add a lot of value to someone in high school because their kind of plan is already typically fairly mapped out. Mm-hmm. Usually they're about to go to university and they still have a bunch of time to figure out what major to do and things. So they don't have that many action relevant questions for us. Yeah. Well, let, let's try to add some generic value here. So yeah, we haven't talked that much about this, like uh, what your young people do uh, on the show before, but I, it seems like there can be quite a lot of gain from kind of shifting your trajectory or shifting your, your ambitions early on. I guess I've heard from people who say that, oh, they wish that they'd learned about 80,000 hours years before when they were in high school, because it would have put them on a different path. But I guess also there, there might be some concepts that are, that are relevant to everyone. Yeah. What's a message you might want more students to, to be hearing? So I think one is taking your productivity seriously. I think a lot of students treat their time as extremely cheap because usually they don't have much money and they do have plenty of time. And so they end up doing things that are pretty inefficient. For example, they don't necessarily think through carefully how to study as efficiently as they can. I definitely was very guilty of this. I just kind of figured out a way that I would revise for exams in high school and then continue doing that rather than doing any reading about what the best study techniques might be. And this is not just about studying well, necessarily. This is also um, when you're thinking about productivity, you can be learning like habits that are going to stand you in good stead for the whole rest of your life and like can apply them to sort of the extracurricular stuff that you're doing to the like careers, things that you're trying out, like internships and things like that. I think it's like a very broadly useful skill. Yeah. And there are a bunch of things that can help you with your productivity that people don't necessarily look into. One that I find very important is having an accountability partner. In normal jobs, you usually have a boss who asks you every week, how did your work go last week? What's your plan for next week? What went well and badly last week? How are you going to improve for next week? And I find that extremely useful for keeping me on track and making sure that I'm thinking realistically about things and not beating myself up, but am setting ambitious goals and things. And students don't have anything like that, but they could easily pair up and help each other in that way. Yeah, I definitely know some people who've done this at like PhD level where they effectively found themselves like a line manager from a friend. And I think like Michelle said, this is the kind of thing that you could do earlier on as well, for sure. 
So, yeah, I think people at high school, certainly me and like me in the early years of undergrad, I didn't value each hour of my time all that much. And I suppose one reason is you don't have that much money. So you feel like you have to potentially waste time in order to, to save money in a, in a bunch of different ways. But another reason is like, so I, I like study more efficiently. Now I have more time. What am I doing with that extra time? It's like I, back then, I think my marginal hour was just spent hanging out with people, which is kind of useful, but it's not not super useful. Yeah. Is, is there anything you would recommend that people like redivert their time savings from efficient studying towards? The thing I really wish I had done was think more about where I was aiming for and what I needed to do to get there. Because I, like you, spent a lot of my time hanging out, maybe reading extra things for courses in a kind of unstructured type of way. Whereas what I would have really liked to do was learn a bunch more about what kinds of jobs I would be good at by taking on research assistanting or reading more about what it would be like working in some particular type of industry, maybe taking an internship there. University is a fantastic time for doing internships during the summer and and testing out a bunch of different things. But it's very easy not to actually get into doing that. Yeah, I mean, I guess we should be too harsh on hanging out with people because folks do potentially get a lot of value out of well improving their social skills but also making making new connections it's probably better to be spending time with your friends than studying really inefficiently (laughs) (laughs) Uh, we wouldn't recommend that someone do the reverse that they yeah stop hanging out with their friends and instead just study much worse but I also do think, so we have, um, we have a really nice article, actually, advice for undergraduates. And I think it's just, it is really worth emphasizing that the kinds of things that you might be wanting to do during your university time are like, studying is like a useful part of that, but is not even obviously the, the majority of the thing that you should be like focusing on, depending on what it is that you want to do with your career. Like uh, thinking about career stuff, thinking about learning more broadly, um, different like reading around, around interests, or, like thinking about course prioritization, thinking about just like traveling, getting experience doing leadership roles in like community clubs and things like that like all of these things are just uh, can be really important and if you can get better at using your time you can spend more time on all of these different things yeah definitely a thing that probably would have been useful for me at undergraduate would be getting to know a broader array of people through joining different clubs and things like that yeah there's a strange paradox where it feels like people don't value their like an incremental hour very much until they graduate and then suddenly they're earning money and they value it a ton but it's not obvious like how this can be consistent because lots of the things that they could have been doing later they could have been doing earlier and it seems like there should be some rough equivalence in like how valuable or how much they should be willing to to save an extra hour like in the final year of their undergrad versus the first year of their working or even like the first year of their undergrad versus five years into their career like how can there be such a stark difference in how people treat time given that for example, they could just save time, work harder, and then like just push their life forward quicker by graduating sooner, for example. I'm not quite sure what to, what, to, what to make of that. Maybe there's something where there's just things that you can do once you have a job that you couldn't do before at all. I guess you could, you could also think it's a credit constraint issue that people have much more money after they graduate and get a job. And for that reason, there's things that while it would be good if they could borrow money against their future income and do those things earlier when they're an undergraduate, they can't. And so uh, they're left with lots of time and no way to fill it. Yeah, I think that definitely is part of the effect. I think some of it also is just your reference class and who you're around. And once you're working, you're suddenly around a ton of people who have been working for a longish while and have gotten a bunch of money and gotten into the habit of using it to save time and things like that. I think that's part of why I was thinking it seems important to spend your time at university meeting more people because it's just very useful to surround yourself by people who are doing the kinds of things that you want to be doing. 
Yeah. I guess the stuff that I feel I don't have time for these days is like learning more broadly. It's like I barely have time to keep up with, you know, the most important effective altruist research that's that's coming out. And, you know, I get to read books sometimes in order to be able to prepare for, for these interviews. But I kind of wish that I had read a whole lot more stuff when I was in when I was an undergrad, when I did just have hours that I would fritter away, potentially playing computer games or hanging out with people in a somewhat aimless way. Yeah, I think once you once you get your first job, you'll be like, wow, do not have time for doing quite as many of these of these things as I wanted to. Yeah. And which is why I think that things like the Effective Altruism Introductory Fellowships that some of the community groups run are just really great kind of guided reading groups where you have other people to discuss some of these ideas with and like nudge yourself to do some more of this kind of learning more broadly beyond your course. Yeah, I find reading groups so useful for getting me to actually read the things that I want to and then also to understand them better because you get to chat to other people about the uncertainties you had in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. One thing that I suspect that many people should do, though, I suppose it's slightly risky advice and you shouldn't give it to everyone, is just borrow more money, like go into debt when you're a student, because very likely your income is going to be a bunch higher. And you help to reduce this inefficiency. What's, what's, what's the joke? It's like when you're young, you have no money. When you're like middle age, you have no time. And then when you're old, you have no energy. And it's like, <laughs> to some extent, you want to like fight against that where I guess like, well, try to preserve your health so you have energy when you retire. Take some leisure time when you're middle aged and at the peak of your career. And to solve the one when, when you're young, where you're potentially like not getting as much out of life as you could, kind of the only way to do that. Well, I guess you can try to get money out of your parents or <laughs> money out of someone else. But alternatively, if you're reasonably, reasonably confident about your career prospects, then you can just try to borrow money where you can and and use that to get more out of your undergrad. Or perhaps, I mean, there are scholarships available if um, borrowing isn't something that you feel like psychologically like or like you're comfortable with, especially because I think, you know, like money is just like a psychologically like very fraught thing for some people, especially Mm. depending on what kind of socioeconomic background you come from. And so being aware of the funding sources that there are available in the potentially in the wider effective altruism community might be quite useful. Like um, Open Philanthropy have this year started an undergraduate scholarship program for people wanting to study in some US universities. Yeah, there's also the Effective Altruism Infrastructure Fund, which is increasing its remit and has already provided scholarships to students and and paying for tuition in some cases. Yeah, one sort of spending that I would recommend to lots of people, or at least if they can find a way to get access to the money through scholarships or parents or the banking system or whatever method they have, is sometimes I meet undergrads or high school students who are using like very old laptops or equipment, where it's like clearly just going to be slowing down their ability to get things done on a computer where they're doing basically all of their learning. And I think also sometimes meet people who aren't able to spend enough on rent in order to get a comfortable place in order to study effectively. And that just seems like it could be like quite catastrophic in terms of wasted time or like foregone learning if you don't have a quiet place where you feel comfortable to actually spend a lot of time in your day learning as quickly as you can, learning as efficiently as you can, and then also potentially doing doing, doing side projects. I guess like rent can be expensive, but we would think it was nuts if we didn't provide people working at firms like in their late 20s with a reasonable place in which to work and get things done. And yet we kind of regularly allow undergrads to like, there's no places in the library and like the house isn't really a conducive place to study because there's too many other, there's too much noise, too many other things going on, too many distractions. There's something like that that seems a little bit mad that we've set things up this way. Yeah, I think it's worth floating that I think to a lot of people, this might feel quite unusual compared to the the sort of the culture that there is at the university and sort of what your peer group is doing. And particularly if you're sort of part of a community that wants to do a lot of good, I think people can feel hesitant or uncomfortable about sort of spending resources on their own personal productivity and that kind of thing. And I think I really sympathize if people feel like that. I think I similarly feel like that even, even working at 8,000 hours. But I think it is 
I think that's part of why we're sort of pushing a bit more in this direction, because I think it's it's really valuable for people to go a bit further than than they might by default go on these kinds of on these kinds of issues, just because it just is really like what you're doing is really important. You are you have a huge amount of potential and it's worth investing in yourself. It's going to pay dividends in the longer run. And so I think that's sort of where we're coming from in this conversation. Yeah, I try to get people to see a symmetry between money and time in this respect. So I wrote this post long ago, uh, it's like, don't waste time to save money, where, you know, sometimes you see people who spend effectively like hours bargain hunting, say to like find cheaper versions of things. And then if you think about the hourly salary that they're getting, it could be like, you know, $5 per hour. And they might think, oh, no, I'm being very frugal. I'm saving money. And I'm like, you're not really being frugal with time. You're being a spendthrift with your time. You're like wasting time in order to, to save money. And you need to think about like, would I would I be willing to like lose an hour of my life for five dollars? And, and always be kind of like thinking about the equivalence and like yeah, how how valuable is the money relative to the time? And think about it over your lifetime as a whole because if you're going to like lack time in future and be willing to pay fifty dollars when you're like twenty seven in order to get an extra hour of work, then maybe you should like do that work now if there's any way to bring it forward. Yeah, I think studying economics at university myself also like made me start thinking in this direction. It was the first time in my life that I was like, I'm gonna get a two pound fine if I don't take this book back to the library like right now. But I, like that was not very convenient for where I was. And from having studied a bit of economics, I was a bit like, I could just eat the two pound fine. Yeah. <laughs> like if that's actually better for me. I did ridiculous things when I was an undergrad. I I um there was a time where like to avoid like a fifty pence charge on using my debit card, I like maybe went and walked for what ended up being like twenty minutes, thirty minutes to go find a cash point. I'm like, I think <laughs> doing that kind of thing made me realise like this is probably I've got the wrong exchange rate in my own head here. One dollar per hour, have you been <laughs> You're so worth I, it. <laughs> so I think don't do those kinds of things uh, at all. Yeah, yeah. All right, that's time and money and trying to make better use of time. Is there anything that you wish kind of more high school or university students were hearing more often? I think trying not to let yourself be locked in by what you've studied so far as far as possible seems pretty important because it feels most salient to you what you've already studied. And so it feels pretty hard to change direction, even if what's going on is that you've studied kind of two years of of one subject so far. But actually, university is the best time to explore widely and, and maybe change course. After university, a lot of people end up taking jobs that don't have anything to do with their undergraduate. And so thinking pretty widely about what options are open to you seems pretty great. It's often not that easy to do because professors at university are very focused on academia and focused on your subject. And so you hear a lot about what it would be like to do grad study or to go into academia and not that much about what it's like to do a whole host of other kinds of jobs, which is where reading widely, like Rob said, can be really useful for making sure that you're thinking about all the different options that are available to you and thinking through how hard would it actually be to get into them rather than just thinking about what does the thing that I've just been doing most naturally set me up for. So you think people have a sort of a functional fixedness where they're like, I graduated with petroleum engineering, so I need to be a petroleum engineer, or they, they like don't want to perhaps squander the qualifications that they've, they've gotten, or, or like they would feel that it's squandering the, the qualifications to not go and use them directly. Yes, absolutely. And I think this does just feel bad, right? If you worked really hard at something and then you go into something totally else that you could have done a couple of years ago, and so you didn't actually need that qualification to do, it can be really frustrating. But 
we do know quite a lot of people now who have really shifted what they did. For example, one of our staff members works in internal systems for 80,000 hours and she qualified as a doctor. Uh, sorry, two of our... Yeah. <laughs> two of them, yeah, that's true. We have two doctors on our internal systems team, yeah. I mean, the, yeah, the list of what people who qualified as doctors have gone on to do AI safety research, mm. internal systems, yeah, just like all kinds of things in the EA community. Um, biosecurity research is like yeah. maybe a natural That feels more natural, yeah. <laughs> And I think one of the things going on with people having finished their qualification as a doctor is that two years into studying medicine, you feel like, well, I shouldn't squander that. I should finish my qualification. And then once you finish the qualification, you won't easily be able to switch back into being a doctor unless you do the two first foundation years. And so people can get all the way through med school and do two foundation years and then think, actually, I don't think it'd be best for me to be a doctor and switch when it would have been much better if they had switched two years in instead. Mm-hmm. Mm, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, wh- why do you think people are inclined to throw, uh, I suppose one, one metaphor for this would be throwing good time after bad, uh, mm. where you've like already potentially spent three years studying something that you don't really in your heart want to use, and then you're inclined to spend more time going down that path. Is it just like the sunk cost issue? Or just like it's, to admit that you're like not going to use your degree directly is like just taking this massive upfront cost. You're like writing, writing that off, and maybe people find that psychologically hard to do. I think there's a bit of that going on, but I do think this is actually just a bit about people raising their aspirations and widening the kinds of options or the possibilities that they're even considering. Mm. I think there's just a bit of that going on. Like, it's there are certain things that will be like familiar to you. There'll be things that like were at the university job fair and you've been flyered to hear about and that kind of thing, which is why I think that, yeah, this is just really important advice. I think the like exploring thing is just. It's probably like the main thing I would say to people. It was like this like emphasis on exploring in part because in part because of this, like widen your options. Don't get too anchored on the one thing that you've so far enjoyed. Think about your career as this very long thing. It's like multiple decades. And so the, the you know, you've got to try and like maximize the impact that you're having over the course of that whole time. It is like well worth it at the beginning to spend a few years trying out different things before you land on the thing that you're going to you're going to like focus on and become more of an expert in. Yeah, I think another thing going on is that it can take you just a while to really understand how you feel about something. I did physics at university for my undergrad. And at the end of my first year, I remember coming to the rather sad realization that I just didn't like physics that much. And you might think that it would take me less than a year. And in fact, when I said to one of my friends, oh, I'm actually not sure I like physics, she looked at me and was like, did you ever like physics? (laughs) Um, And yeah, I think particularly for, for courses like medicine, where maybe studying medicine is quite different than being a doctor, it can be the case that you end up doing a lot of studying and you like studying medicine but then when you become a doctor you realize that you don't that much think you should continue being a doctor yeah yeah all right yeah are there any other themes you you wish more more students were hearing so one of the things that's great to do at university in general is to get involved in sort of like student groups and volunteering or sort of and leadership positions, partially just from like getting the experience of doing that kind of that kind of role. It's yeah, great training for learning kind of work style, yeah, things that are going to serve you well in like the workforce. But in particular, I think getting involved in the effective altruism community and getting involved in and maybe some of the like community building there seems particularly useful, not just from a skill building perspective, but also from like a direct impact perspective, because the university groups are just huge in terms of how important they are in, in getting people interested in effective altruism. When you look at sort of the EA survey, the like personal connections is the like the biggest deal for getting people involved in effective altruism. And university is 
is the is the age where most people do kind of come across this kind of thing. Then there's like another factor of so sort of you know, if you're going to get involved in like the committee of one of these groups, a your skill building, b you are sort of helping like this direct impact of getting other people involved, and c there's also this other feature which is that for many people who've gone on to be uh, doing really impactful things in the world, um, being involved in running a group was actually a really key important kind of feature of their journey where being responsible for actually like having to talk to other people about the ideas and like organize events and, and that kind of thing really like gives you a bunch of commitment to actually like learn more about it yourself to be able to talk to other people about it. And so I think this is actually just like a really great thing for for many different reasons from a school building perspective. Yeah, I found it hugely useful to be involved in my university effective altruism group in terms of getting to know other people with similar values to me who were thinking about these kinds of ideas and and what types of considerations should be on my radar and holding me accountable for learning more about it and, and for actually putting it into practice. So one of the things that it's really helpful to take the time to learn about is specifically diving into this kind of cause prioritization thing and like what your views are on which problems are the most important, because there could be this massive variation between what's actually the most important to work on. And the fellowships that I just mentioned are particularly great for that, I think. Yeah. What might either of you have benefited from from hearing uh, personally when you were an undergrad or perhaps at high school? It's hard to feel that this is going to be useful for other people because I feel like I had an atypical experience uh, in, in the... I'm I did, curious now, yeah. Well, so I did a ton. I like I did lots of studying and I did a ton of community volunteering, organizing things. Uh, this is like before effective altruism was so much of a thing. And so I did a lot of RAG, which was Raise and Give, which is like the charity stuff and Amnesty International and that kind of thing. And then I went to like an EA thing, an EA talk in the, my last year. But I, I didn't... So one thing that's like is more applicable to people is that I didn't even consider grad school at any point. I didn't ever try research. I don't think like even though I did well academically, I just it didn't really like cross my mind to consider that. And then I think the next few years of my career, I went further and further away from that being the kind of thing that I was um, that that was like as plausible for me to do. Like after four years of consulting, I'd kind of trained myself to like doing fast paced work. And sort of now it seems less likely I would be more like ever likely to go in that direction. So I think I do wish that I had like I didn't even do a dissertation. I did like only did exams for my undergrad. So I really do think that it, that would have been a, a useful thing to try while you're at university. It seems great to while you have access to libraries and to professors and things to get a chance and like holidays to do some research internships. That would have been a great thing for someone to tell me or for me to tell me in the past. The other thing was that, like I said, atypical experience. I did all this like studying and I did the like groups, community stuff. And I just didn't make any friends. <laughs> Not to sound like a massive loser, but I like didn't socially like hang out with people ever and I think that was like I was Seems like, like an oversight I know <laughs> and I feel really bad because like everyone tells you university is so great you make these like friends who are going to be your friends for the rest of your life and I just like completely failed to do that I did have a nice time I was very happy while I was at university but it, it's been that was a thing <laughs> Lucky you've since made a bunch of friends who follow you around for the rest of your life. Sure, and much better than the friends you would have made at, uh, at university. Um, well, yeah, was there any reason you uh, didn't spend that much time socializing? Was, didn't feel it was the most important thing to do? Or? It didn't really cross my mind. <laughs> So it really was just an oversight. It was just an oversight. I think I was like at that point, like, you know, and still now family was very important to me. And so that was like a big anchor. I'm pretty sure I like talked to my family, like maybe once a day or something and really enjoyed throwing myself into these things of like work and the community stuff, like volunteering and think that kind of thing. And then was just kind of introverted in my spare time. Yeah, not, not really sure. Yeah, Michelle, is there anything, anything, uh, any mistakes that you made? 
I really would have wanted to try out more different things during university. So I spent basically all university holidays loosely studying, but in a very unproductive way. And I really would have wanted to spend them instead doing things like internships or learning about different kinds of jobs there are in the world and how to figure out whether they were well suited to me. I also just would have wanted to be more intentional about how I was spending my time and what directions I might go and things like that, starting from high school where I studied physics and philosophy at university and that's just not that useful. And it was quite fun, but I really think I could have studied something that would have been just as fun and more useful for the world. For example, I considered studying politics, philosophy, and economics. And I think that would have given me a better understanding of the world and useful ways of helping others than the actual degree that I did. So I think both in like big ways like that and smaller ways like what kinds of jobs do I think I should be trying out during my summer holidays and what things do I think I should be learning alongside my studies rather than just getting good grades would have been good. Yeah. Do you ever worry that kind of the vibe that we have here is going to cause people who are potentially quite young to not be as free-spirited or like experimental or just like curiosity following as as maybe it would be ideal. Remember, yeah, when I first started my, my undergrad degree, every so often I'd meet someone who was just clearly like deeply committed to some path that they had in life. They're like, I'm going to become a politician or like, I'm going to like win this scholarship, or win this prize. I'd be like, creeping me out like what? how can you have such a clear vision of what you want to do and like be so driven and like I don't know maybe I thought of it as like kind of narcissistic or something but I don't know maybe we should just tell young people to like do what they find interesting uh, at least at that like we often tell people not to do that so much like maybe when they're 50 but uh like when you're 19 maybe you should be like I don't know just just doing what young people have always kind of done disproportionately I mean I think in some ways my vibe was in fact going in the opposite direction from the one you're pointing because I was so focused on my degree and mm. just uh spending all marginal time reading more physics and philosophy whereas I should in fact mm. have been experimenting more and following my curiosity on different things and stuff yeah, maybe it's more of the stuff that I was saying about like, oh, you got to treasure every hour. It's like, maybe you got to like, maybe it's important sometimes to not treasure every hour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do think it's helpful for people who are early stages in their career when they look at our advice to not take it too much like this is gospel. Like I must do these this specific things and like work on, like go for this particular path or something like that. I think um, there's like a temptation to do more of that, the, I think, for younger people than there is for sort of people who are, who are sort of later on and like have I've thought about multiple different sources and their own views. Mm. Um, hence why I think if I were to try and give people advice, I think I would emphasize this exploring thing more, like come to your own views on a lot of this stuff. Yeah. I think I also, I don't want to be too down on non-effective altruism at an early age. So I did stuff at university that was like super ineffective. I like did like a CV writing class at like a local homeless drop-in center that was like, I was terrible at it. And like one person came. But on the other hand, I think that doing some of these, I mean, I'm not sure that a lot came out of that particular kind of specific experience, but in general, having done various different attempts at trying to do good, I think I got a better sense of, well, some of these issues are complicated and like some of these things I'm not, don't have the right requisite knowledge yet to be able to be useful for and like getting a sense of seeing like what works and what doesn't work. And sometimes, at least for some people, it is just very powerful to have had experience doing something where you get to uh, it, it can be very powerful to see firsthand something like extreme poverty, even if 
the project that you're doing isn't the most impactful project that there is in the world. And like, maybe you could have had even more impact if you just donated to the project rather than being there yourself. I'm not sure how much I endorse this, but I think it's just in general, I think trying out different things and like forming your own views on like what's worthwhile is actually like stands you in good stead later down the line. I think it would be a shame if people went straight to assuming that we've got it all worked out and therefore they should only try the things that seem like they are the perfectly most effective things already or something. Yeah, maybe another thing in this cluster is that when you're younger, I think it's easier to meet people outside your bubble potentially. Like you can go and get a job and like work in hospitality where maybe you don't expect to work in hospitality later in your career, but you can like learn to get along socially and learn how to communicate with a broader audience. Because like once you start working at, you know, once you start working consulting, then you're going to be bubbled to like an even greater degree than you are. Yeah. Early, early in life. And it can be hard then to build the skill of like, well, how do I, how do I speak to people who like aren't in my immediate group of friends? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I do basically agree with this. I had a period when I was a child of living in Indonesia, in Jakarta, and I think seeing a really different area and actually living there and getting to know people there probably gave me a somewhat different perspective than had I just grown up in the UK. And I think doing some of this kind of stuff as a student could help with that. And it doesn't necessarily need to involve going abroad. One of my friends at university volunteered at a refugee center and it was just pretty interesting how people basically just down the road from Oxford were living and the difficulty of the government trying to prevent it being too easy to come into the UK and therefore treating asylum seekers really shockingly badly. And I think that just knowing her doing that gave me somewhat of a different perception of what laws I think were, were reasonable and things. And I think it would have been even better if I had actually gotten involved in some of those kinds of things. There is some danger to this kind of thing in that it's seeing that kind of suffering firsthand can make it pretty hard to then work on something else. I've read a great blog post by Julia Wise a long while ago about figuring out what kinds of problem you think is most important to work on and then letting yourself learn tons about it to the point where you feel really empathically drawn to it. I think different people are going to struggle with this to different degrees, though. All right. We've like talked about a bunch of messages that we think it might be useful for more, more students to hear than, than currently do. How confident can we be that like any of this is sound advice or that is pushing people even in the right direction rather than the than the wrong direction? I, I It feels like the kind of the, the empirical loop here is like quite weak because we're never going to like see people who take this advice and like then know the counterfactual of how things would have gone otherwise. Yeah, I think really all of this should be taken with a lot of salt. And this is very much bits and pieces that we've picked up from, you know, I watched someone do this thing and I think it would have been better if I had done that. And here are a few views to consider when thinking about what you should do, but you should ask as many sensible people as you can for their takes on what kinds of things might be good to do. And then you should think yourself a bunch about what thing you actually are going to act on. All right, let's push on. I guess, yeah, earlier we've talked about kind of the broad theory of how the one-on-one -on -one team and uh, all of the career conversations are, are likely to have an impact. But when we when we invite non-80,000 hours people on the show, we often kind of pick apart their projects and ask them about their strengths and weaknesses and how much impact they're having. So I feel like, so it feels only fair that we should uh, do that to ourselves, or at least only fair that I should do this to you two. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, yeah, we're running out of time, so we'll have to do this relatively quickly. But yeah, maybe the first one is like, yeah, how do you conceive of kind of the different streams of positive impact that the one-on-one -on -one team might be having? 
Yeah, I think there's a bunch of different types of value people get out of our conversations, and it depends a lot on the person. But I think of it as in three different kinds of buckets. One of them is on the kind of sounding board for a person's plan type of side. So it's thinking through how they might rank the different options they have, what the next steps might be, that kind of nitty gritty. The second is basically encouragement of different forms. So that might take the form of actually reassuring someone that the plan they have is a good one. Another is encouraging people to reach out to others and seek the guidance that they want. And then the third is providing kind of what you might think of as more concrete benefits. So introducing people to others working in fields they're interested in or sending them specific resources and flagging books that they might find it useful to read. And I think that latter part is probably where most of our value comes from. I kind of think of the conversations as learning a lot about the person in the first kind of two thirds to try to figure out kind of where they fit in the overall landscape and what the kinds of directions are that might be sensible for them. And then towards the end of the call, thinking through how can they learn more about whether they're a fit for that direction and how can they figure out whether they they would like it? What should the next steps they take be in terms of finding that out or applying for things? Yeah. And I think ultimately then all of these, all of these ways that we're helping people, I think cash out in hopefully helping people to shift their career plans and ideally like, and be moving into a particular role that is like their, their specific niche, like the way that they can have the most impact. Um, sometimes within 8,000 hours, we talk a bit about two different ways that we could kind of change someone's career. Like potentially one of the biggest things that we could do is this kind of trajectory change where we, someone was going off in a one particular direction and then due to our, inf- our influencer and our help, they switched to going in a completely different direction. This is actually just relatively rare because a lot of the kinds of people that we might help are the kinds of altruistic, agenty, smart people who would find out these kinds of, you know, connect with the community and like find out some of these ideas, even if we didn't exist. So it's like, it's relatively rare for us to think that someone would like never have come across this kind of help or like never made this bigger change. Although like, we think that sometimes we contribute to, at least there's some chance that we've caught this kind of trajectory change. One of the other things that I think we think is maybe often more likely is sort of speeding up someone to end up on that path. So maybe the help that we give them means that they're able to sort of start working in a really impactful role four or five years earlier than they would have otherwise if they had to work this all out by themselves. Yeah, I guess. So if we were thinking about this from like a benefit cost point of view, I suppose each year that one of you works is kind of like one person year of effort that's gone in. And in order for kind of these career conversations to be worthwhile, then you'd want to be producing like at least, yeah, at least the equivalent of your own effort every year and like additional value that someone else has gotten out of the work that they've done, like either having more impact or doing something quite different or getting to where they were going to be sooner. Yeah. How can you collect evidence on like whether you're getting more than one year per year or ideally like hopefully several years per, per year of effort that you're, that you're putting in? Um, yeah, this is really complicated. <laughs> we, yeah, I, I know it is. Sorry. <laughs> so over the years within the team, I think we've put a lot of effort into trying to measure this kind of thing and quantify it. 
I think that, yeah, ultimately we do really care about seeing, we care about the opportunity cost of the sort of the, what people in the team are doing and also whether this is like a worthwhile project at all. And so like, it is important to us that the work that people are doing in this year is like generating more value. I think, so we've tried to do some over the years, like investigation into people who've made plan changes and then various different investigations of sort of like what went into that kind of change and what the counterfactual would have been, how much is down to us, which different programs were involved, that kind of thing. Ultimately, I guess like when you when you do all of that work, we try and put it into this comparable metric, which we call a DIPI. So a DIPI, D-I-P-Y, stands for Discounted Impact Adjusted Peak Year. So what goes into that is that we're trying to like standardize how much impact someone is having. People are working on different problems. People are working different amounts, all that kind of stuff. So we try and like standardize it to sort of one dippy is one year's worth of work on something that's important and high quality at someone's like peak output. And then we have to calibrate it to something and partially in order to help us make this kind of evaluation between like the work of the team and how much value we're creating, we sort of calibrate it to sort of like one dippy is roughly one year's worth of our work. And so people can be doing better work than us as well. But that's sort of what one dippy comes out to. So that said, when we try and do a bunch of this different evaluation, our best estimate is that we are creating in the one-on-one team between four and five of these dippies per year's work of an advisor at 80,000 hours. But that could be that could be out by quite a bit. It could be out by an order of magnitude even. So we try not to put too much weight on that specific measure. But roughly, we think that this is like maybe competitive with other programs at 80,000 hours. It's maybe like competitive with the podcast. It's maybe not quite as impactful as the website, which just has this huge reach. But it seems like an impactful enough program that we're excited about expanding it and offering it to more people. Okay, so this would be like a very purist way of thinking about things where, yeah, you try to think about like time or like quality time in versus like quality time out. And I suppose you want to get like more than a one for return. I guess you could think of it like investing, like one year you put in like $1, how many how many dollars are you getting out at the end of the year in like all of the other people who you help to, to have more impact. I think this would, to most listeners, this would sound like this, obviously you should analyze it this way. And we have tried to do that. It is like exceedingly difficult. As you're saying, you like end up coming up with numbers, but it's a lot of effort and there's a massive uncertainty around it. And it's not always clear that it's super, super action guiding. I guess if the number was really low, like far below one, then you might start to question whether it was worth it. But it is surprising how hard organizations find it to get great guidance out of these kind of purest impact measures where they're like, yeah, just trying to like tally up all of the, all of the good that they accomplished. Yeah. If people want to learn more about the Dippy measure and our various efforts to, to do this, they can check out our annual review from last year. But yeah, what, what, what are some other ways that we try to figure out whether what we're doing is worthwhile and maybe what parts of it are most worthwhile? Yeah. I mean, I think another alternative way of looking at how good a service are we providing is to actually just look at what our users say about us and sort of see if we are providing a good service by their lights. So we can just look to sort of feedback from users. We give people a feedback form after the calls and sort of 70% rate us six or seven out of seven for how useful we've been to them. One of the other things that we do is this user survey. So we did a big user survey last year, going to a wide range of people asking about all of 80,000 hours different programs. From that, 175 people who'd received advising filled out. So that's out of a total possible of like over 800 people that we've ever advised. So it's like, it's a relatively small sample of advisees. But of those people, about half of them said advising was important for them in 
either taking a job or changing a career, which were the two things that we asked about on mm. the survey. And then specifically we asked them, that, that could be, you know, advising was important, but so was the website or so was the podcast. Mm. So then when we like asked people what was the most important 80,000 hours service for this kind of plan change, 26% of those advisees said that advising was the most important. So it goes down from 50% if you're saying was advising important at all to 26% if it was the most important service. I think it's worth flagging that this is like, this is not to say that, you know, half of advisees think that advising is going to be important for them taking a job. I think that the the people who bother to fill in a user survey are going to be disproportionately people who have been affected by 80,000 hours. So I, I think that there's going to be lots of people who like, didn't take our advice or like didn't make a change and just didn't bother to fill in the user survey and tell us that. But it is, I think, yeah, I think it's like, it's like nice to have, to have some sort of feedback from our users here. Yeah, I think this also matches with, I, I did try and do a thing where I coded the sort of valence of the comments that people wrote qualitatively. And again, this kind of came to like, about half of them said something positive about their advising call, or at least like tick the box that advising was important for a change. Um, but like a, a solid kind of like 37% of people just didn't even refer to their advising call in the survey as well. Yeah, I guess, what fraction of calls do you think are worthwhile after the fact? Yeah, so each of our advisors tries to figure out after a call whether they thought that call was likely useful for the person or not. And right now, we rate about 80% of our calls as probably worth having. I get one of the things that makes working out the usefulness of a call really hard is that, like I said, sort of careers take a long time to to change people. Uh, we might we don't find out about the impact that we've had on people until like many years after. I think last year in our doing an impact evaluation, we discovered a whole bunch more plan changes, as we call them, from 2017 that we just previously weren't aware of. So there's this, there's this huge lag, which means that it's it's quite hard to get a really sharp sense very soon after the calls about how useful this is going to be to a person. Yeah. I guess that lots of listeners might be worried that when we survey people on this kind of thing, that they are going to tell us what we want to hear, that they're, they're biased towards saying that things were useful or to like, or to attributing like things that they might have done anyway to, to advising or to 80,000 hours as a whole, because it will make us happy. Or maybe it's just hard for them to think of the ways that they would have ended up doing something useful anyway, even if they hadn't happened to read our website or listen to the podcast or get advising. Yeah. What kinds of methods do we use to address that? Yeah. In the past, when we've done these more in-depth case studies where we interview people quite a lot about their plan changes, we are very cautious on how much we estimate the sort of the percentage chance that we had an effect on them. So our estimates are typically considerably more conservative than the person gives themselves. So people do often say to us, like, there's like 90% chance that, that I'd be doing something else if it wasn't for you. And that typically goes down in our evaluation at something like 30% or, or something. <laughs> so, like, it's not ridiculous for there to be that level of difference, I think think between what we try and evaluate and what people might self-report. And then specifically when it comes to the user survey, I think this is definitely a thing that we should be aware of that like people might be like particularly positively reporting because they are they know that we're going to be reading the results. Our user survey, we really did try and design it maximally possible to like encourage people to tell us the negative effects that we'd had on them. So I think there were multiple points where we said like, have we had any negative effects on your career or like the the downsides of the advising or the things that weren't so helpful, which I guess is like us trying to compensate for this kind of effect. Another thing that's helping us now is that other people in the community are starting to do surveys and ask specifically about 80,000 hours. The Open Philanthropy Project did a survey like this. 
where they asked about a whole host of different groups and 80,000 hours was one of them. And then they asked people whether they were happy for their results to be shared with 80,000 hours. And so that gave at least a sense of what do people say when when they're not necessarily directly targeting it at us. Although obviously we should expect that people who had said nicer things about us would be more likely to be willing to have those shared. Yeah, that makes sense. What has been one of the biggest challenges that the one-on-one team has faced trying to uh, yeah, have more impact? One problem we have, I think, is that this isn't a very scalable type of intervention. It is very labor-intensive, and then also you need to hire people who are pretty good at getting an understanding of people and have a good understanding of a lot of different careers and are going to be good at signposting people and good at having conversations about values and things. And that means that we've historically just not been able to offer that many conversations to people. And a corollary of that is that we've had a fairly selective process for which people we talk to, to try to find the people that will actually get the most out of it. And a thing that's particularly worried me about that is that people can apply for the service and then be turned down for having a conversation and take that as a strong negative evaluation of their likelihood of having an impact. I think that's not at all what we intend to convey when we say that we think we'd be more useful to someone else because there are just a lot of different reasons that we might be able to be useful to one person and not another, including pretty contingent things like someone applies who happens to be considering doing a project in an area where we know someone else who's trying to do a similar project and we think it'd be useful to put them in touch and things. But that's definitely something that we've worried about quite a bit in the past. And we've tried to make some changes to head off this a bit. For example, we now introduce some people who apply that we don't speak to, to other people in the community who are also able to to have these kinds of conversations. But it's a thing that continues to be on our mind. Are there any other kind of visions for what the one-on-one team would, like what service it would be delivering that has been considered over the over the years and I guess, guess rejected in favor of what you're doing now? Yeah, we've considered a pretty broad range over the time. Uh, last year, I did a fairly in-depth consideration of different ways we could do these. Examples of the types of things we considered at that point were having a service that was much more time intensive per person. So talking to fewer people, but for each person we talked to, talking to them say every month for a few months or something. So spending more like 20 hours per person rather than one hour per person, really helping kind of guide their journey into effective altruism and things. We ended up thinking that that one was going to be less valuable probably because we often have quite a few things we can like quickly say to a person in particular, other people we think it'd be useful for them to be in contact with or resources we can send them. And so we think probably we'll get less value out of the like next few hours. We think that this kind of thing is a really useful thing for some people to 
do, but it's not clear that you want a stranger doing this with you as opposed to finding people who know you relatively well and getting a a mentor in a similar area to you, that type of thing. And then other examples are things like giving workshops or speaking tours or talking to a, a broader range of people than we do now, but for an even shorter period of time. So if you think that a lot of what people get out of the service is basically getting to meet someone with kind of similar values to them and being face-to-face on the call. Maybe you think that actually you could do 15-minute calls with people where you actually don't know as much about them and, and that would end up being more useful. We also in the past have done quite a lot of headhunting and that's a thing that we're now doing in a more paired back way. And we think that potentially we get quite a bit of the value doing a slightly scaled back version of what we were doing, but we would like to do more of it in the future. Yeah, so I can say a little bit more about the the sort of mini scaled back version of headhunting. So that's a thing that I spend a bunch of time doing nowadays. I call them mini hunts, which is roughly where there are um, organizations that are in the sort of wider effective altruism or ex-risk community when they're hiring for particularly impactful roles. If they want some help sort of sourcing leads for that, sometimes they get in touch. And then I can do some thinking through our network, checking our CRM, asking some of the other advisors for or other members of the ATK team sometimes for recommendations and like pull together a short list and send it over. And then sometimes I do some more ongoing support where I might reach out to those people and then encourage them to apply. Yeah. So doing this kind of paired back version of headhunting does seem to give you a ton of the value for a relatively small amount of my time, which means that I can slip some in there between weeks when I'm doing advising, which is very helpful. It's something that we would like to do more of maybe in the the future as we grow capacity of the team as well. One thing that's particularly useful is for me to have a sense of actually people within the community who are interested in being suggested or put forward for roles or maybe contacted if there are some roles that they might be qualified for. A lot of the time I'm doing these mini hunts for roles that are publicly available, but occasionally we might get asked by organizations where they're not publicly hiring. And so it's useful to have a sense of who might be open to that kind of opportunity. So if that sounds like you and you're actually in a role right now, but would be interested in being put forward for roles that come across my desk, then I would definitely recommend that you let me know. I'll put a form on the website, on the team page under my name that you can fill in to confidentially let me know that you would like to be considered for roles. Nice. All right. I guess for people who are interested to learn more about 80,000 hours internal strategizing, probably the best place to go is to look at our annual reviews. Yeah, we'll stick up a link to, I guess we have a summary of the one from last year. And then we also have a link to a Google Doc, which is a lot longer for people who are especially, indeed, more enthusiastic than I am to learn about what 80,000 hours is doing. (laughs) You've got no Um, idea what we're doing, do you? (laughs) I know what the podcast is doing, (laughs) which is moving on to the next section. Um, All right. We are almost out of time, but I do have a little final section, which is a bunch of questions that I was not clever enough to slip in meaningfully anywhere else. So they're just left over here. Yeah. First off, there was this essay, I think a year or two ago, written by the philosopher Agnes Callard called um, Against Advice, which a whole lot of people forwarded me because I guess we're in the business of providing careers advice. And I read it and I actually really, really enjoyed it. Did either of you two see it or or remember it? Yes. I think I read it, but I don't remember it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. All right. Well, I'll I'll give a brief summary of it. I guess 
Agnes Callard, she like divides advice into three different categories. I think the first one is instructions where it's like, here's how to get to the library or like, here's how to like open this coffee percolator. Things where it's like extremely concrete where you can just like do it and it's the same for everyone. And then the the third category is coaching where you like know someone really, really well and you figure out what their strengths and weaknesses are and give them like a lot of detailed advice on how they can be better at some task like writing or doing philosophy or whatever. And then there's like this middle thing called advice, which is where you try to do the final thing, which is like give useful, specific information that someone could like use in order to develop a skill. But in the in the guise of the first one, where it's just like broadcasting information, for example, on the podcast, where we try to provide like generic instructions that anyone could use in order to get better at some skill, but it's like a brief and you don't know the person. And basically, I think Agnes argues that this is usually not possible, that when people are asked to give advice of this sort, it tends to fall flat and they just end up saying platitudes like, you should try practicing writing every day, something that is true, but like not useful and not not really adding that much value. And I think it is, it's like interesting to wonder why that is. But my experience is that there definitely is a tendency in this direction that when you try to broadcast like life-changing advice, like important advice on how people can do better in their life to everyone, it either ends up being like wrong or kind of a bit hollow. Yeah. Do, do either of you have a, have a reaction to that and whether that's perhaps relevant to me or to 80,000 hours as a whole? Yeah. I think this seems like pretty sensible overall. I often think of what we're doing as kind of like signposting. So it's trying to get a really good lay of the land so that when people come to you saying something like, where's a pretty cathedral or something like that, we can point them in the right direction, where in this case, it's quite often, I want to learn more about this kind of thing. Do you know of any resources that are good at that? Or I want to speak to someone who is working in finance, but also considered being an engineer. That's the the kind of type of thing. Yeah, I actually think probably the the one-on-one team is somewhat off the hook because probably you fall more into the third category where you're actually spending enough time to get to know people. It's not only like the half hour or one hour conversation and potentially even follow-up calls, but you've done like so much work ahead of time that you can tailor the advice usefully to the specific person who you're talking to and like point them in the right direction you're saying to other people who can give them even more like coaching style style advice. I think that is somewhat true. I think I feel a bit skeptical of the idea that we know the people well enough to be able to tailor things very exactly, which is why the thing I was thinking of us as doing was more like answering direct questions. I think that's really the key difference or something is rather than like saying a whole bunch of things, you're trying to get some sense of the person and then getting them to ask questions Mm. um, where the question need not be as direct as that. It could be more like they express an interest in a specific type of area or something. And and you say like, well, here's something that you might want to consider reading more on that area or something. Mm. Yeah, I think it is relatively rare for us to try and give the sort of specific steps kind of advice. But I think one thing that does seem to fall like somewhat in this category, and I think I do think is useful is the sort of trying to construct your sort of ladder of cheap tests kind of advice, which I think is the kind of thing that I might say to someone, even in just like a somewhat generic way, where like if they're interested in like a particular area to start off by trying to explore it, learn a bit more and like gradually put in more and more time and like maybe like write a post on the forum about it or something like that. I think this is like, yeah, this is like one of the things that maybe falls into the category of of like specific kind of advice that's like about specific steps. 
Yeah, and maybe I slightly take back the not doing much that falls into the last bucket because maybe some of the kind of thing we can say to people is having more of a big picture view of which kinds of things they're considering seem kind of realistic for them or something. This is probably most useful for fairly young people who find it like more difficult to assess what kinds of things they're going to be realistic candidates for or something. And we have a better sense of that. In that case, it it is quite a case of having asked them to do quite a bit of prep work and having their CV and things and simultaneously being in touch with lots of different organizations trying to increase impact and therefore being able to say at least something about how good of a candidate they might be for different roles. And Mm. so whether it is or isn't sensible for them to be looking to go in a certain direction. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I feel like Agnes's critique is perhaps like most brutal for the like advice section or the like personal advice section of, of the podcast. And indeed she uses like Mm. podcast interviews as like the example where Mm -hmm. this kind of advice often, often falls flat. I suppose that we used to do more of these like personal advice sections early on. And I think part of the reason why we don't do it as much anymore is I guess one way that you could make it like very actionable and definitely useful was to like narrow it down to like, well, who are the specific PhD supervisors who like someone who wants to work in this area should go and talk to? Like what conference should they go to? Like what's the best paper to read? Which is like much more on the instruction side, but then you've narrowed the audience massively. So you're like almost getting to the towards the coaching level because you're assuming that there's a listener out there who fits a particular a particular profile and who's going to like, who wants to know who's the who's the best PhD supervisor in this very narrow area. Then there's like also trying to give people like general life advice, like lessons that I've learned, like what mistakes I've made and what we can learn from that. And I think there are some useful generic advice that is sufficiently general that most people listening to it will benefit from it. But I think like the number of things that are true for most listeners is pretty limited. And the reason a piece of advice might be controversial is that, or like non-obvious is because there's many people making errors on both sides. Like you could try to give a piece of advice, a general advice, like you should explore more, but there are actually people on both ends of that spectrum. Some people who are exploring too much and some people who are exploring too little. And it can be hard to just, you know, spray out advice to an entire audience of 10,000 people and have it, have it be actually meaningfully useful or like able to, able to change their life in a, in, in a positive direction. Yeah. You probably do just in order to know that you have to know a lot about the person. Yeah, I think the case in which that might not be true is where you found some audience that's pretty different from the typical or something. Mm. I found a surprising amount of parenting advice not that applicable to me. But when I looked at the advice that my friends would have given me, it turns out that they were kind of similarly career and impact oriented or something such that they approached it kind of similarly to me. Mm. And I would guess that there is going to be at least some mileage we can get out of the fact that our audience is going to be aiming for impact more than the typical person out there. And so there'll at least be some things that are relevant for that reason that aren't obvious. But on the other end of the spectrum, I guess the like the thing that the podcast can do really well is this like in-depth look at that particular person's career, like Mm. with the Andy Webber one or or the uh, Tom Inglesby or something like that. And then people can take from that the lessons that they want, which like not, it's not all going to be applicable to your career, but it's at least interesting and informative about what they did. Okay, uh, one other quick one. I was reminded on Twitter recently of this post that Tyler Cohen wrote a couple of years ago. I think it was just like 
completely off the cuff, but it's kept doing the rounds because I guess it just resonates with people again and again. Yeah, a quick quote from it is, um, yesterday I had lunch with a former PhD student of mine who is now highly successful and tenured at a very good school. I was reminded that over 20 years ago, I was graduate director of admissions. One of my favorite strategies was to take strong candidates who applied for masters and also offer them a PhD admission, suggesting they might do the latter. My lunch partner was a beneficiary of this de facto policy. At critical moments in time, you can raise the aspirations of other people significantly, especially when they are relatively young, simply by suggesting that they do something better or more ambitious than what they might have had in mind. It costs you relatively little to do this, but the benefit to them and the broader world may be enormous. This is, in fact, one of the most valuable things you can do with your time and with your life. I guess, yeah, to what extent do you think that channel of like making people be more ambitious about what they can do is one of the most useful things that the one-on-one team does or that perhaps 80,000 hours does as a whole? Yeah, I think this is a hugely important thing. I think a lot of people feel like, the world is somehow irreparable and there's nothing they can really do about it. And so giving specific ways that they might be able to help with it and the general sense that there are things out there that people can do really helps. And then also talking to people specifically and saying, hey, you actually seem really talented. You absolutely can do something useful. You should go for it can be pretty useful. One of the the most recent additions to our team, in fact, ended up applying for the job because I talked to him on one of our one-on-one calls and said that he seemed like a great candidate for applying for a bunch of direct work jobs, which he previously had felt too nervous to apply for. And yeah, encouraged him to, to apply for them. And now he's working with us. So I think this is, yeah, actually just a big part of our value add. Yeah. And I think it's particularly I'm interested in like being more ambitious on an impact perspective, particularly. And I think that's just like a really huge value add of just the effective altruism community in general. I think this is like part of the the reason why I signed the Giving What We Can pledge was just because I became aware that it was a thing um, mm. and like wouldn't have like it didn't really occur to me that I could make such a significant commitment until someone had like floated the idea or, or something like that. Yeah, it's been so significant for me as well. My first job was running Giving What We Can and it just wouldn't at all have occurred to me that I could set up or run a charity until someone was like, hey, this is an important thing to do. You agree and it's an important thing to do. You should have a go. I think you'll be fine at it. Mm-hmm. And then I figured out how to do it and it went you fine. Were, more than fine. <laughs> yeah, I do also think that I'm pretty keen on giving people a taste of the sort of privilege that you get when you get to go to like a really like elite school or an elite university. I think like in a lot of those situations, people are constantly told that they can achieve great things and go into life with this robust sense of like, of course I can. Self-efficacy. Yeah. And I think more people could stand to hear something similar. Yeah, it's true what you're saying that that is a meme that gets promoted a lot in in elite schools. But at the same time, it feels like there's this part of our culture which is fatalistic about everything. And it's like, it feels like, oh, the, the smart opinion is that the world is bad, it's getting even worse and like nothing can be done. Whereas I just feel like the world is actually like surprisingly good <laughs> given that humanity has done so little to improve it so far and is getting better in a whole other ways. And like almost all of the problems that we talk about, there's just so much concrete stuff that can be done. And people have like barely even tried to solve these problems and before they've even like written, written them off, it's like not possible to fix. So yeah, I'm like, let's approach the world with more of an engineering mindset that but we will fix these problems by Joe. <laughs> For some of it, it just is very intimidating. And we just really need those of you with more self-efficacy uh, helping us go at it. <laughs> Climate change. No problem. <laughs> <All right. laughs> 
Um, all right, uh, it is it is Friday night, and we've got a house party to get to. Um, but I want to I want to offer some TV and movie recommendations. So mm-hmm. in order to give myself an excuse to do that, I will first ask you, like, what what TV and movie recommendations do you have for the uh, for the audience? Um, so I feel like I was a bit late to the party on this one, but I recently watched It's a Sin, which is available for people in the UK from Channel Four, which is a show by Russell T Davies, who you may know as the showrunner who brought back Doctor Who. I sure um, do. <laughs> and it's particularly about the experience of particularly gay men in the 80s uh, and their experience with the AIDS crisis. And I thought it was a fantastic show. I think it's one of the great, it's a great example of, I think fiction is so powerful in like helping you experience the world through other people's eyes. And like, yeah, I think that's just like a, such an excellent thing for expanding your empathy for like other people. And uh, yeah, it's a funny show and also just really touching and very sad and quite haunting, but I really recommend it. Well, to bring down the tone a bit, I recently very much enjoyed A Discovery of Witches, which is a kind of fantasy world where vampires and werewolves are real. And it's set in Oxford and then in France and is absolutely beautifully filmed and is just basically pretty happy and a lovely escape. I was sick one week and spent the whole time watching it and really got a lot out of it. Yeah. Last week, I went and saw the new James Bond film at the cinema. I think I had not actually been to a cinema in three years. I think for the last... you went to one. Yeah, no, it's crazy. Yeah, so I think for 18 (laughs) months, it was COVID that was keeping me away. And I guess before that, it was because I don't like movies or going to the cinema. (laughs) But but I actually, despite my, like, general not liking movies thing, I, yeah, I I, I really enjoyed it. It was uh, full of effective altruist themes and... Yeah, just just really well produced. Uh, if if you haven't been to the, I suspect a lot of people are going to go to this movie because they feel like they've been forced away from the cinema for for a long time. And that was kind of me. And yeah, so if that uh, if, if you fit that profile, I think uh, yeah, give it a go. It's a lot of global catastrophic biological risks in there. So maybe uh, go listen to the Tom Inglesby interview from 2018 before you go. It's important prior reading. <laughs> <laughs> As a side note, I'm a big fan of kind of pop culture stuff crossover with EA funny threads on Twitter, which Mm. I'm carving out as my niche now. I've done like Twitter threads of what career paths would Lord of the Rings characters go and do if they went went into high impact careers. And I will do more in the future. We'll definitely stick up links to that as well as everything else that we've talked about. Uh, My guests today have been Habiba Islam and Michelle Hutchinson. Thanks so much for coming on the show, both of you. Thanks, Rob. It's been fun. It was great. If you'd like to apply for advising from Habiba or someone else on the team, just head over to 80,000hours.org slash speak. It's completely free and it shouldn't take long to fill out an application. And if you did listen to this before you'd heard part one, uh, you can head over to the original 80,000 Hours podcast feed and search for episode number 122. All right. Audio mastering and technical editing for this episode by Ben Cordell. Full transcripts and an extensive collection of links to learn more are available on our site and put together by Katie Moore. And I produced the show. Thanks for listening.